Welcome to SDSPA's 2023 podcast season. I'm your host, Laura Kaler. South Dakota Specialty Producers Association is made up of growers, consumers, and others interested in producing, marketing, and supporting South Dakota specialty crops, meats, and locally made products. This podcast is made possible through a specialty crop block grant SDSPA received through the South Dakota Department of Ag and Natural Resources. This season, our podcast theme is Growing Here, how South Dakota producers are growing their specialty crops. With a limited growing season in our region, South Dakota gardeners looking to get the most growth during the summer are likely looking into opportunities for indoor seed starting. On this episode, we'll focus on how cut flower growers are starting their seeds. Christine Lang, SDSU Extension Horticulture Specialist, and Tanya Flegel, owner of Flegel Flower Farm, will share their advice and tips. Hey, Christine and Tanya, could you both start off by introducing yourselves and give our listeners an overview of your involvement in horticulture? I'm Tanya Flegel. I manage uh, the Kingsbury Conservation District, and um, I also own Flegel Flowers here in Lake Preston, South Dakota. And I got into, um, I guess, growing flowers because I always like to. <laughs> um, and I just started selling them when I had a lot of interest. And I'm Christine Lang. I'm an assistant professor and SDSU Extension Consumer Horticulture Specialist. I'm based in Brookings, but have statewide responsibilities. So I work with gardeners and um, vegetable and cut flower farmers across the state and collaborate a lot with my colleague Rhoda Burroughs. And I've had the chance to study horticulture formally, but also worked in garden centers, did a brief stint as a florist for about six months. And, um, you know, I, I started getting questions about cut flower production for South Dakota. And so I'm usually, I'm usually half a step behind, I think. I'm usually kind of searching and looking for information, but part of extension is helping people network and, and find credible information. So I, I probably learn just as much as um, I share out, which has been really fun. And I think this is an exciting time for cut flower production in South Dakota. It really is. Thank you both for being here today. I'm excited to learn from you. So I personally am somebody that tends to garden more with a direct seeding method in my raised beds. Can you tell me what advantage I would find if I started my seeds indoors? Some of the advantages, especially in these northern states where our growing season is short of starting seeds indoors, is giving us an opportunity to grow cut flowers in the field that, you know, if we direct seed them, we might not even get a chance to see a bloom or see them pr produce. Another advantage of starting seeds indoors is some, some seeds have kind of poor germination rates or are really picky about, you know, temperature or things like that. So um, we can create those ideal conditions, um, you know, have bottom bottom heat to create nice warm soil conditions so things germinate a little faster um, and have an opportunity to grow really robust transplants that are going to be ready to hopefully withstand our South Dakota winds um, or go into our high tunnel. Um, by starting seeds indoors, um, some cut flower growers, especially with things like snap dragons, for example, 
They might have several indoor seating events so that they can have several outdoor seating events. And that way you get stems that um, are at different lengths and you're not just having all of the stems ready at one shot, but um, you know, different maturity dates. So you can lengthen that season that you're harvesting some of your different cut flowers. So that can be a huge, um, huge advantage of starting seeds indoors. Um, for example, something like Lysianthus, I had to cross check this, but um, it's a cool season flower, but it can take 12 to 18 weeks from seed starting to when it's recommended to transplant it outdoors. And that's one that can be really finicky for people. Um, and, you know, again, a lot of that hybrid Lysianthus seed is going to be quite expensive. So, you wouldn't want to just go scatter that out in your, your cut flower farm because germination is probably going to be poor to non-existent. And if you direct seed it outdoors, you're probably not going to get any blooms. So um, that's that's an extreme example of one that you know folks have already started indoors if they're getting ready for their growing season. Great points. Tanya, do you have anything to add to that? I agree with everything she said. Um, I don't think you're limited because you are in raised beds. I think you have an advantage just because I do a lot of raised beds out here for my vegetables and um, I can put a low tunnel on them. And like she said, when it comes to like snapdragons, um, when you wanna plant those, um, there's a different season for different snapdragons. Some will take a cool weather, some will take a warmer weather. So you can plan your succession planting for those snapdragons and put them in your round tunnel even before the last frost in your season. So, you know, something like a, a your raised beds is, you know, really an advantage, but starting your seeds, you're able to time out when you want to plant outside, how many you want to plant outside. Um, and it, it's just easier to calculate what you need to do later on, you know, right away, you're going to start your seeds, you know, as a beginner, you want to start all your seeds at once, but then you have all your blooms at once, but you, you learn in the process inside that it's like every two weeks you start your seeds. So you have different flushes of flowers during the season. And that's kind of why you start them inside too. That, and you can control your atmosphere. So you don't get that fungus. So you, you're not bringing in fungus from other, um, I'm not saying this happens a lot, but um, from other um, nurseries or anything like that from different states, anything that they produce in their warehouse, you're going to produce in your garden. So, yeah, she's spot on on everything. And I, I recommend starting, you know, your own. Mm -hmm. That's encouraging. An example you both gave was snapdragons. What are the varieties do you think do especially well with indoor seed starting? Tanya, I'm going to let you expand on that first because you're starting way a much wider array of flowers than I am. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, any of the snapdragons do really well inside. Um, I've never had a problem with the snapdragons. Um, I'm doing rocket mix, um, the coppers. I'm doing uh, the twos and the threes, the cool seasons, like the one Number ones, usually we don't grow around here, but the twos and threes we do. You'll see those on your, like Johnny will have that. Johnny's packets will have what um, they are for a one or a two series. 
kind of like your Lysianthias, where you're not going to grow the ones around here. Um, but I've never had too many problems with snapdragons. Um, you may fall into problems depending who you buy them from. So make sure you buy them from a reputable um, dealer. Sometimes eBay can get a little sketchy. You might have like a 50% germination. Um, Johnny's, they have it on their packets. And so do um, like um, your, I have a whole bunch of seeds, Baker Creek. And, you know, I just stick with the ones that I've tried and true. You know, they have like 98% germination rates. And usually it's spot on for me. And yeah, I'm curious um, what else you're starting indoors above and beyond snapdragons. You you mentioned Lysianthus. Are you starting Lysianthus from seed? Yeah, I did. I did. And this is my first year. Um, and um, the only reason I had any confidence about doing this is I did a lot of research. I spent two weeks reading about them, watching YouTube, um, looking at the bestsellers, watching their videos and then my master gardener grew them last year and she said tanya you can do it if i can do it <laughs> and they're turning out really good right now so um the big thing with those is they take about 14 days to germinate just germinates and you can see this on my facebook page i've, I've been posting progress with um kind of each stage as they're growing and um, I started mine January 9th, and now they, they're looking really, really good. Um, you start them, you want to keep them down for those 14 days. So every day I had to test them. And then after that, when they finally germ and you have two good leaves, I take that top, my little um, top off my uh, growing case. And then um, after that, kind of want to let them dry out you don't they don't want to be wet all the time or they're gonna get a root rot in them or a stem rot in them so I've been very careful on watching my watering and stuff like that and the big thing is do your research before you do something like this awesome so on that research aspect what are you recommending that people do or what are some things that have worked well for you for, as far as gathering materials and supplies and what your setup is proceed starting um i have a lot of different things i've tried a lot of different things um people are going to have different opinions about this some people love soil blocking i'm not too big into that it's a lot of um time to do soil blocking and i only i only plant in my backyard so i i'm not doing a zillion flowers you know i know exactly what i'm growing for because I have the space measured out to what I need. And um, so I, I do all 72 trays. And then when I, um, I use a pro mix and I mix a little sand with that pro mix and I never sieve it out because like the bigger chunks I can just throw out. It, it's just fine, you guys. And the pro mix has worked really well for me. You might work, you know, use something else. I damp that down before I put them in my 72 tray um, cell. And then um, depending on what seed, you know, like snapdragons, they need light. So you just put those on top. Or um, like I did larkspar the other day and they needed to be a quarter inch into the soil because 
you know, and they need cool conditions. Um, so I've tried many ways. I've tried putting containers outside and let them go dormant during the winter. Um, not too much good came out of that because we had a very um, dry winter um, and you got to water them, you know, and, but the 72 block cell tray works the best for me so far. And I can keep them in there as long as I like almost until I have to plant them. Christine, what's your setup like? I'm with you, Tanya. I, I've heard of people who love soil blocking and I have deep respect for people who soil block well. Um, I The times I've tried it and I am self-professed, not the world's most patient person, but I couldn't get the moisture right and I just ended up with a mess. So I too, for my cut flower trials and right now I'm just working with snapdragons and zinnias on campus, but I too am using 72 cell trays and they're the, the standard depth. And that worked really well for both snapdragons and zinnias for me last year. And I too am using kind of, yeah, standard pro mix or planting mix that I get from a wholesaler in Sioux Falls. Um, I, one, one thing that I want to share, I've noticed if folks, especially if you're tight on space and for some of those more picky flowers that you're trying to get started using plug trays. So like 288 cells per tray to get you started, um, so that you can kind of baby them and monitor that humidity and light and, you know, germination temperatures, if you're using heat mats to get those plants started can work really well. And this is something I've watched my colleagues at McCrory Gardens do for a lot of the flowers they're growing is they'll seed things in those plug trays, keep them misted, get those plants germinated. And when you've got um, several sets of true leaves, they'll then pot those up into a larger six pack, for example, and continue growing those. So again, um, you know, if it's something picky and you're tight on, you know, space in your germination area, that might be something to consider, but it depends on, do you then have the time to transplant those plugs into a bigger, a bigger container before you're planting them outside? But otherwise for a lot of things, yep. Start with the 72 cell tray, maybe a 50, if you're worried about the roots, um, being an issue, but I would completely agree with that. And I'm spoiled on campus. We do get to start a lot of our plants in a greenhouse space, but we only have one greenhouse for everything. And snapdragons, for example, they would love to be a little bit cooler and zinnias like to be a little bit warmer. So you have to kind of find that middle ground because we only have one greenhouse space um, to start everything in. Um, but you can modify for some of those warm season plants, things like celosia or zinnias. Um, you could use some heat mats underneath and create some, you know, warmer microclimates if you're trying to keep your greenhouse a little cooler. I, I agree on the plug trays too. I, I used to use those, but I didn't like having to handle them moving up to a 72 inch tray. And I always found, I've always tried to decrease every step in between every plant. So in the, my 72 cell trays, I plant like three. And then I can transplant like the, the best out of the best out of there into another 72 um, plug or cell tray. Um, and they're hard to get out sometimes out of the plug trays. And I've noticed the other thing is they dry out faster. And I have yes. to walk, just keep a really good eye on them all the time. 
Yeah, plug trays certainly dry out fast. And I've seen, we have a setup here on campus and I've seen other people have some sort of a setup where you might have like a mist nozzle over those plug trays. But yeah, if you're not, if you're not watching them, you can, you can kill a lot of plants pretty quickly by letting them dry out in those little teeny tiny trays. How do you guys do your planning? Um, you kind of talked about there are some tricks for compensating that some need higher temperature than others, but what are you doing to lay out what you're going to start when? Um, I guess I'll start with that since mine's a backyard and um, I went out and measured my backyard and um, seeing how much room I had and you got to leave, you know, at least two to three feet in, in between like your four foot row, just just so you can walk and reach in between there too. But after you get your square footage and turn it into inches, um, I think um, I, I have a PowerPoint that I, I posted on for Johnny's that you, it, you're gonna find Johnny's website is awesome. Just go to it, learn everything you can off of Johnny's and take everything because it's free. Um, they'll give you an example or you can punch in your numbers on Snapdragons and say, I have a 20 by 10 foot bed. Um, I want to plant Snapdragons at four inches apart. And it's going to tell you exactly how many plants you can fit in there. So that's how I started doing it. Now I just kind of know how many plants I can put out there. And um, I also made an Excel sheet and each cell is my one foot. So everything is already pre-planned on my Excel sheet, which is really, really nice. Sometimes you have to change it up, but it's always great to have a pre-planned Excel sheet or a drawing that you can work off of. So you, you know, in your head that it, that's how you're going to do it. Hopefully. I love that idea of planning, mapping, using Excel. Um, I too am an Excel nerd. I, I am far <laughs> from an expert at using Excel. But the other thing I like to do is, yeah, do some some calculations based on my bed feet or we'll we'll spend a lot of time. We we grow our cut flowers in pre-burned landscape fabric. So I know how many holes I'm gonna have in each roll of landscape fabric if I pin that down based on how many feet. So I know what my target number of flowers is. And, you know, if I'm cutting that space into four different varieties, I'll cut that down by a quarter. So I'll know how many plants I'm trying to put out there as transplants. And I usually insert, you know, a 10 to 15 to 20%, you know, you've got to come up with a number that's good for you, but uh, these plants aren't going to look good enough to transplant out factors. So I kind of work backwards from that. So I think, okay, I need 10% more plants, or if I'm trying to calculate, I know I need X number of plants. And if rounding up will get me another half tray or a second tray, so I have some insurance if the rabbits eat everything or the deer chomp them off, or there's heaven forbid a hailstorm and I need to replant. Um, so those are some of the things I think about for planning, like how much to seed and working backwards. And then a big thing for folks, you know, depending on where you are in South Dakota, 
being aware of when your frost date, um, you know, the last, the anticipated last frost date for your location in South Dakota is so helpful because so many of these seed packets or so many of the production guides will say, you know, seed six to eight weeks before the last anticipated frost for your area or seed again with those lysianthus 12 to 18 weeks before such and such a date you know there's we we spend so much time talking about that frost date and if you're listening to this and you're like i have no idea what my frost date is for where i live in south dakota um we have a website um it's called the mesonet m-e-s-o-n-e-t and the website is just climate.sdstate.edu. And under, there's a bunch of different tools and there's the state climatologist tools. And there's a drop down menu for frost freeze maps. And what I'll go in there and do is set it for the 50th percentile. So that's kind of the middle of the road number for the last spring 32 degree day. And that generates a beautiful color map. So you can see kind of those anticipated date ranges. So when I look at the map for Brookings, that last spring 32 degree event, um, we're, we're pretty safe if we're looking at May 4th through 5th. So I can, you know, start planning after that. Now I, um, I'm someone who doesn't like to take a lot of risks. So I kind of, in my head, will maybe go a week after that just to be safe. Cause again, that's the 50th percentile. Um, so there's still, still some risk that there could be a frost event after that, but it isn't, it isn't going to be as high. <laughs> Thank you for directing us to that resource. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally <laughs> agree on that frost date. And I agree waiting like one week because ever since I lived in South Dakota, I think it's been 20 some years, I've been planting on Mother's Day. I've only had one year I lost all my peppers and peppers are very susceptible to frost, you know that. And um, if it would have been like snapdragons, they would have been like, oh, that feels good, you know? But it has only been, you know, Mother's Day has always been my my golden day for me to plant outside. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, you know, you look at the frost map for South Dakota and it ends up being Mother's Day for quite a big portion of the state. So it works out. <laughs> what a perfect plan to do with your family then on your Mother's Day celebration. <laughs> Can you guys describe the steps that you take for starting the seeds? You've talked a little bit about it, but if you've got anything else to add to that, and then maybe also a little bit about how those steps differ for different types of flowers. For, for my team, when we're planning to start seeds, um, again, yeah, we're playing, paying attention to recommended planting depth, which does vary by seed. Tanya's already alluded to the fact, you know, snapdragons, they're it's pretty much like planting dust. My undergraduate who helped me last year was not super <laughs> impressed when I had her help me plant seeds. So I think something, you know, if you are someone who, you know, if you're planting some larger seeds, I'm going to go with some extreme examples like nasturtium has pretty large seeds. Typically you could just direct seed those, but for some reason, if you decide to transplant them, um, you know, that's one where, you might be using a pencil or a wooden stick and we call it dibbling. So, you know, to dibble is to just make a hole in the middle of each cell and drop that seed at the appropriate recommended depth and maybe gently cover it with soil. Um, 
you know, for again, for those teeny tiny seeds that need light for germination, you might just be sprinkling or setting that on the surface. I think having some sort of a spray bottle or I've even seen people use like a little, like a garden weed sprayer that has never, okay, get a clean one. Don't use one that's ever had herbicide in it, but a clean sprayer that you can gently spray over those flats to kind of wet them, wet that seed down. Um, having having watering wands where they're not water blasters is really important for seed starting so that you're gently watering things in versus blasting out all of that hard work and seed. If it's the kind of water sprayer that you use to wash your car, um, throw it out. It has no business being anywhere near your seed starting area or having, again, a watering can or, you know, just ways to gently water. I can't stress that enough because you'll see I've, I'm guilty of it too, um, but you know, you'll wash all of that seed away or you'll wash it all to one side of the tray. And you know, the goal of getting that seed in the middle of the tray is so that you know, the roots can be equidistant and have you know, an ample amount of soil versus having that plant kind of scooch all the way over to one side because you kind of want that same distance between plants. And we're trying to get things to germinate evenly so that you're not suddenly half your tray of flowers is taller than the rest of the tray. And then your plants are all different heights and it's a mess and some are shrimpy and some are beefy. Um, I guess the other thing I'll add, you know, thinking ahead after things have germinated for, you know, seed, seed tools or management tools is depending on what your goal is for cut flowers, if you're going for, I want the absolute longest stems possible, so I want, you know, a single stem per plant, then ignore everything I'm about to say. But if you're trying to do, you know, mid-size vase arrangements, or you're doing a lot of mason jars, or maybe you're going to be selling to a florist that's going to be doing foam work with Oasis, and shorter stems are okay, so you want more stems per plant, um, be prepared to have a snippers ready or have, you know, nice sharp fingernails and be ready to pinch those plants once or twice when you're growing them, you know, indoors before you plant them out. Because that pinching by removing that growing point, you're going to have branching and you're going to have more stems. But again, bear in mind that those stems are then going to be shorter. So if you're looking for really tall vase arrangements, um, don't do that. <laughs> Again, I agree, other than I don't have a team to start um, my seeds, unfortunately. She can, you can send some of those guys down to help me sometimes. <laughs> I have, I was going to say, I have one really patient student who did all of my seeds starting last year. Nice. So I need to hold on to her. She's like gold to me. <laughs> well, my husband watches me. <laughs> That's about it. But, um, from seed starting and then putting them out, um, I guess it's knowing your seed. Most of the packets will tell you, um, always read your packets. They try to tell you how to grow them because these are growers. Unless you buy them off eBay, that might not give you a description. But, um, you know, some seeds, snapdragons, that's on the top. Or uh, what rule of thumb is the smaller the seed, um, the more sun it needs. And the bigger the seed, the deeper you're going to plant it. Is that is that true? Is that, am I kind of correct on that? I have found that to be true in most cases. I can't think of a great exception to the rule right now. So let's go with it. <laughs> okay, so that's what I heard from different people, different sources. Um, um, so, but always read the back of your packet. It's going to tell you the depth 
to plant your seed. Um, I use a germination chamber um, to keep the moisture in. A lot of people just freak out over um, if they should be using heat mats. Usually your lights are giving off enough heat to keep it warm enough, but I do have a thermostat or thermometer out there. Um, I do have one system that I start everything in and it does have bright lights in it. And then everything gets moved over to another system where um, there's no heat mats, it's just light. Um, the only thing I really use heat mats are like maybe zinnias, but by the time I start zinnias, it's warm enough in my basement, I don't need to. But um, like hot peppers need like, oh, I think it was 98 degrees on one of my hot peppers. I think that was a scorpion last year. And uh, so I put the heat mat on and my lights were fully, fully lit on that one. The biggest thing is keeping light on them. And if you have a, in a German cha germination chamber, they should stay pretty warm enough. It's just watching your moisture. Um, from then, you know, when they start poking up and like I said, I'll do two and two or three per chamber. And um, if they all look great, I can just trans you know, transplant those into another 72 um, uh, chamber. And I, I just can't um, say this enough, label, label, label. You think you might be labeling enough, do it more, do it more, write more, tape it, waterproof pen, whatever, because I lost all my stuff the first year and I almost started crying because I didn't know what anything was. And um, so, you can transplant those. You, you get more plants out of that if you need to, or your germination might be 60%. So you still get your plants out of it. And then from then, you know, um, after the seeds have come up, you've had them in a very delicate situation, controlled situation. Um, so you want to put them outside to harden off. And a lot of people skip the step and you don't want to skip this step. It's very important to grow strong stems on your, on your plants. And it just pretty much means you're going to put these after when you're getting mornings and days that are like in the 30 sums, 40s. And I, you know, we got pretty much good wind here. So I don't have to say, wait till a nice windy day, but um, put them outside for two or three hours each day and bring them back inside. Um, you're just going to strengthen up your roots even more, your stems a lot more. You're going to have a better resilient flower later on. And that's at that time, that's when I start pinching stuff off. And um, I don't usually pinch stuff off in the basement, but um, when they're hardening off out on my deck and I have a little more room and I can throw the waste out in my garden and stuff. So, and from then, um, you just plant. And, I think people think uh, plants, seedlings are really delicate. They're not, they're not. You can grab that whole thing out of there. And if you have a good root system, you can grab that whole plant out of there and it's gonna pull, it's gonna pull all the soil out of there and you won't have trouble getting it out of your cell. And then you just stick it in your dirt or compost or whatever you're using that time. So Tanya, as you were just mm -hmm. discussing that, I thought of two more things that I kind of can't live without when I'm starting seeds. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it sounds dorky and people might laugh, <laughs> but a good oscillating fan oh, to, yes. to Tanya's yes. point about sturdy stems. Um, you know, I see so many photos online, you know, just maybe even just from home gardeners, like, oh, my plants are all stringy and sad. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's nutrients, sometimes it's a disease issue, but usually it's a sign of, yeah, you need more light or you need to get that light closer to those transplants, like hanging right over them Mm -hmm. and, or getting that air movement, um, you know, to get those stems to start to move and have to correct themselves and strengthen their cells, even before they go outdoors, um, you know, will really set yourself up for success. And I a hundred percent agree with Tanya that do not skip the step of hardening off transplants. We, we, this last year took all of our, whether it was the vegetables or the cut flowers, everything went into an area that was protected with rabbit fencing because it would have been a real drag to set things out and have it eaten by rabbits. Um, and we had so many trays that we couldn't do, you know, like set it out for a little bit, bring it back in. It was kind of like, all right, we're going to set you outside. So our compromise was the north side of a building, but the it was also blocked from the west. So it was sheltered from the wind. And it, we put ours out when we knew it was going to, you know, the evening temps were going to stay above freezing. And you might be going, well, why did she put it on the north side? It was you know, no matter what we're doing with our lights, or if you're growing your cut flower transplants in a greenhouse, it is still light reduction compared to full sun outdoor conditions. So um, taking plants from, you know, an indoor, whether it's artificial light or greenhouse setting and putting them straight out into full bright sunshine is another way to shock them. You might actually get bleaching on the foliage and all sorts of issues. So that's why we put them on the north side, because you start to get that air movement, acclimating to those outdoor conditions, acclimating to that sunshine, but you're not just throwing them into like the searing heat and blinding sunshine, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that's something we found really, again, worked well for us. And I've seen folks, you know, they might hang a little bit of shade cloth and put their plants out in those you know, a sheltered area. And again, kind of getting them ready to be put into that field or high tunnel where there's going to be a lot of bright light. And I guess Mm -hmm. the other thing I thought of is um, a good liquid fertilizer, because based on what Tanya and I both shared, I think we're using a pretty similar planting mix. And usually those mixes are soilless. So you might not have, there might be a small nutrient charge or a little bit of fertilizer to get there started. Um, but you're probably going to need to do, you know, either with a watering can or uh, if you're so good at cut flower production, you're doing a whole greenhouse full, maybe you'll have a fertilizer injector, but mixing some liquid fertilizer into a watering can and watering your trays um, a couple of times, especially for those cut flowers, if you're growing them for, you know, six plus weeks in the greenhouse. Um, otherwise you're going to maybe have purpling of plants and have phosphorus deficiency, or you're going to have really yellow, sad looking plants and that's nitrogen deficiency. And you want, you know, strong, healthy plants going into the field. So liquid fertilizer products would be something really important that I can't live without for seed starting. And Tanya, do you have any favorite things you use? I make my own because I compost so I can cover (laughs) it's gross. (laughs) Um, So I have a jug inside the house and I put all my vegetables in there. I don't believe in using anything animal waste because um, vegetables don't spread diseases usually. And um, so 
once they, you know, you put a cover over it, leave it in the house and you want to, this is kind of like fish emulsion. It, it just stinks, you guys. Um, you, you get a liquid on the bottom of that. And um, I mix it with water because it's really concentrated. Well, I sieve it out and I mix it with water and I use that because I can go a long ways with that because I have a lot of nutrients built up in that compost that I put in like uh, all my lettuce, all my peppers, all, everything goes in there other than any kind of meat scraps. And um, so that's, that's what I've been using. That's my trick. And I like it just because I don't have to spend money. But like if I'm doing indoor plants, like house plants, then I'll use like a miracle girl. I don't mind because then, you know, I, I know exactly what I'm buying and how much nitrogen's in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I too tend to use natural fertility sources. So I, I don't recommend this for folks who are starting seeds in their homes, but <laughs> depending on what your seed starting situation is, if you are someone who's interested in organic production methods, I mean, there are a lot of fish emulsions, which is basically like ground up liquefied fish. It smells exactly like it sounds. Um, I use a product um, called Nature's Source that's based, um, it's kind of a soybean extract and you can get an organic approved product or one that's a little bit higher nitrogen concentration that's not approved for organic, but we like using that. Um, but yeah, I too have used, you know, the miracle Grow or you know, like mm -hmm. the blue granular fertilizers um, that, you know, if you mix it according to the package directions, you'll know exactly, you know, what your fertility analysis is. And, you know, for transplant production, you might see recommendations, you know, water with 250 parts per million nitrogen or a high rate yeah. might be considered like three to 400 parts per million. And, you know, again, those package directions will talk about add X number of teaspoons or X number of ounces mm -hmm. of fertilizer to X number of gallons. So um, yeah. there are a lot of options for good liquid fertilizers. Quick question, Christine, what yeah. do you and your student do for labeling your seeds? Do you do the masking oh. tape and marker or what's your system? I do plastic tags with, um, I used, I'll use Sharpie and it hasn't washed off thus far. Or yeah, I'll use the waterproof Sharpie or honestly pencil um, can be a great option because it doesn't wash off, but you have to be careful that it doesn't get rubbed too much. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I use plastic steaks and a lot of, um, high quality Sharpie and I haven't had issues thus far, but yeah, my, my stomach clenched when you said that Tanya, it was like, that is the absolute <laughs> worst. I about to start crying. I was just like, what is everything? <laughs> yeah. I didn't oh, even I notice. So yeah, uh, and I use the, I use the little steaks now too. I still use them. And, yeah. um, just a little Sharpie, but now you just use, um, just plain clear tape and I put it over there and it's awesome. And I can peel it off and reuse them every year. Yeah. Um, there's one other thing I don't think we talked about Christine and that's the lighting system. Yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I don't, um, maybe you want to start with what you guys use at Brookings. Yeah. So in our greenhouse, um, we currently have, you know, a greenhouse lights. We're using high pressure sodium and we're hanging those, you know, fairly close to the plants. Um, 
people, you know, a home setting or for seed starting. So like when I'm starting my own flowers and vegetables in my home, now bear in mind, folks, I have an apartment balcony, so I'm not starting much, but we've built a seed starting station that's not unlike a germination chamber um, in our bathroom of all things. And we're using little LED strip lights and hanging those as close um, as close to the plants as possible. And that's working really well. Um, you might see, uh, just to note, I'm far from the expert on LEDs and there's awesome, great new information coming out all the time, but University of Minnesota Extension has a couple of really nice articles on using LEDs for small scale or home settings. Um, but you might see folks advertising like such percent blue light or such percent red light. That becomes really important if you're producing commercial volumes of like lettuce or basil, or if you're worried about inducing flowering so that you get fruit production of tomatoes. If you're starting cut flowers, um, just, just look for a full spectrum LED. Do not worry about, I need to pay extra for X ratio of blue versus red. Look for what's labeled as a full spectrum. You're probably gonna see some specific red and blue bulbs, but you should see white bulbs in there as well. Um, so just, just know that LEDs are continuing to get cheaper and there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of LEDs out there. And if you want to nerd out over, um, photon flux and all sorts of stuff like that, I encourage you to check out the university of Minnesota and dig into their articles. <laughs> Tanya, what are you using? <laughs> I've used everything. <laughs> so my, my, my husband's a little freak on, yeah, on lights and what it's um, putting out and stuff like this. He's, he's, yeah, he's just weird this way, but I love him. I love him. So he, you know, I just, I have shop lights um, and I bought them cheap. You know, I found some free on the internet and I thought, well, I've seen other people use these. I'm going to try them. They're T8s. Um, so far they work the best. Um, I've bought the expensive ones, the little square ones that, put the spectrum out. Um, the one thing I noticed about that, make sure you re read the directions, how much it is, because you can burn your plant really fast if it's giving too much out and you have it too close to the plants. Um, I've noticed with the T8s, um, you can control it, you can raise it, you can lower it. Um, it's not too often they're going to burn them, you know. Um, I've tried the little strip lights before. The, I, 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 I pulled those. I, I wasn't too impressed with those yet. So, um, and then in my grow chamber, they're very, they're, they're a T8 too, but they're the smaller bulbs and they're more concentrated. I have four in one landing. So it's really bright when I germinate and then I can go over to my big, um, shop lights and, um, they're a little dimmer, but they do great because they're not too bright. They're just, just right for me, you know? Yeah. And Tanya, you talked about raising and lowering. I just wanted to share if people are like trying to picture like, how are we raising and lowering them with lights? Um, what I've done in a couple of different settings is I typically will have, you know, some sort of a chain supporting the light. Mm -hmm. And then I'll have, you know, kind of those S hooks is what I think of, you know, attached to the lamp so that you can just, you know, hook that you know, hook it up higher on the chain if you need to raise those lights or hook it lower on the chain if you need to lower those lights. So that's the method I've used to raise and lower lights if folks are worried like, I need a pulley system or something crazy. 
<laughs> yeah, you don't have to go expensive. You you make things work at home with what you have or, you know, find them. Yeah. My background is much more used to using lights for chicks, which is pretty obvious if you have to raise or lower <laughs> the heat lamp. How do you know if your seeds and plants need the light raised or lowered and if the temperature needs adjusted? Tanya, I'm going to let you to speak to what you've seen with giving your plants too much light. Because I have some some things in mind, but I'd love to hear your experience with that. Oh, uh, you burn them. You, you <laughs> kill them. <laughs> they don't want it. It's like sitting out, out, out in the 98 degree sun with baby oil on. You just, it's not nice to them. They, you know, and it depends on the flower. Some, some love it. Some will just thrive in a, you know, your dahlias, your your zinnias just thrive in that warmer weather, that nice sun, but they don't want the bright because they're going to get burnt eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so raising them, um, I start raising them right when I guess my plant is about three fourths away from them and I'll raise them up. Um, you never want them touching the light or anything like that. It, and it depends which light I'm using at home or where they're at, because like I said, I use a couple different lights. Um, um, I don't want them to stretch. And that's a big thing. Once you start seeing skinny, skinny stocks, um, you have the light too far away and you want to bring it closer. They're telling you, they're screaming at you. We need some more light here. Okay. So um, I, I guess I'm just really watching every day what they're doing in the morning before I go to work. And then when I come home, I check on them again to make sure I didn't do anything stupid. All right. There's a lot more feedback from a plant than I might've expected. <laughs> yeah. And I agree with both descriptors of what um, Tanya just said. It's hard to say that the plants will tell you, but you know, if you, if it's not looking like a, a a healthy, bright green, you know, beefy, beefy plant, um, you know, start with light. That's, that's a good place to start. Make sure you fertilized. I would, I would stand by both of those things. Yeah. And like I said, um, some of those lights give off heat, which you don't want because the, the plant will grow too fast. And once it's what, what, what it's really doing is the plants growing, the roots aren't. So the root system's not going to be beneficial to the plant later on when you put it in your garden. So I always like starting at a little cooler temperatures on everything, just to set my roots a little harder in the ground. Looking <laughs> at those kits, the pre-made uh, kind of like grow lab kits, where it's got a plastic cover that keeps the humidity in and has the lights. Are those helpful? Are those necessary? What are your thoughts on them? It's not necessary. Like we said, you can, you can build yours from scratch at home. All uh, except all mine are from scratch or from shelving. I bought from like Menards. There's just one germination chamber that it, and it's like four tiered that my husband bought for me to start out. And that's only where I start my plants so I can control the atmosphere in there. Yeah, and I I would say I've seen people just use kind of, yeah, like uh, metal wire rack shelving and hang lights from that or, 
you know, I think it depends on what you have and how much time you have to build something. If, if you're someone who's like, I want to spend my time doing other things and you just want to get a kit ready to go by all means, go for it. But I think there's ways to, there are a lot of different ways to set up germination areas. Again, if I can set one up in my bathroom, I have full confidence that everyone listening to this can, can set something up, you know, using shelving or using, as Tanya said, space in the basement or, you know, anywhere you can put plants and light and have water, you should be in good shape and keep the animals from knocking it over. (laughs) Any other tricks that you want to be sure that the listeners today know before they start their seeds? Do your research and don't do too much. Don't overwhelm yourself. I, I've seen so many people. I'm on, I, I'm on a Facebook page. Um, it's great. This is a really great um, flowers. And it's Cut Flowers 101. And it helps other people, you know. But the biggest thing I see is a lot of these newer people, and I did it too. I, I seriously did it too. Um, you see all these pretty flowers and you're like, I'm going to grow that and I'm going to grow that. And I'm going to, you know what, um, narrow it down to what you're going to sell, what's going to make money, what you can make a bouquet with and um, make sure you do those the best first and then go on to something else. Once you get the knack down do the easy ones like zinnias do do it one year with zinnias and basil and see how you do on those um the other thing is um i learned a lot of tricks <laughs> and i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot out a name here for youtube but um even before um flower hill garden and all those other ones it was the veggie boys um i think they're based in um pennsylvania I learned so many germination tricks from these guys. It, it, I, it was just blown my mind sometimes. It was just like, God, why, why couldn't they just talk about this on the other web, uh, YouTube sites? You know, just, you know, they made it simple and um, they have a whole bunch of different tricks and they really kind of explain their system from very beginning to the end of the process, even though they do mostly vegetables, but they run a, um, a nursery too. Can you repeat the name of that page? Uh, they're called the Veggie Boys. Okay, thanks. I really like Tanya's advice about, yeah, starting starting intentional, you know, don't start with maybe 20, 20 different types of species of flowers all at once. Start with five or 10 and enough to make a nice bouquet. I mean, that's even been my approach with my research program because I would love to do variety trials on all of the things, but we decided to start with zinnias and snapdragons because they're popular. Um, And I, yeah, I can't stress enough the power of, you know, whether it's a handwritten calendar or a Google calendar or an Excel spreadsheet, but, you know, knowing when you want to start certain plants based on those frost dates and the recommendations of a production guide or the recommendation of the seed packet and start with the seed packet because they put those, you know, start six to eight weeks or start four to five weeks. They've they've done their homework and they want your plants to be successful. So you buy more of them from them. <laughs> um, but, you know, have have some sort of a greenhouse or germination planting schedule so that you can keep track of, okay, it is March, whatever. And I'm going to start this, this, and this today. And two days later, I know I'm going to start such, such, and such. And, and again, you're only going to start with five to 10 things and you're not going to go bonkers, or maybe you're starting with one to two things, 
but yeah, having that succession planting, okay, knowing every two weeks I'm going to start this, you know, having those schedules written down so it's not chaotic, I think would give people a lot of peace of mind. And I have really found that I like looking at um, Utah State University. Mm -hmm. They have some cut flower production guides. They have things, you know, the zinnias and snapdragons we've talked about. They have celosia, lisianthus, stock, ranunculus, dahlias. They have some awesome production guides. And to Tanya's point about how much money can I make selling some of these things? Like how much should I be planning to grow? They have some enterprise budgets too. So you can start to think about how much do I need to plant to make so much money? Um, and they have some of those guides for both high tunnel and field production, because we didn't really talk about high tunnel production today, but if you are using a high tunnel, your seed starting is going to be moved way up on the calendar because you have that artificial, artificially heated environment from the sun and the plastic and everything else um, that you'll be able to plant that much sooner. So I really love the information from Utah State University and the faculty who works on that. Interestingly, her name is Melanie Stock. And she keeps an awesome Instagram for her program as well. So folks could keep track of that and see her research program and some of the guides that are being put out. Um, the last thing I'm going to suggest is don't quit your day job yet. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work to grow flowers. I, I, I think the other thing I see is a lot of these a lot of these people see, um, don't eat the grass and or you can't eat the grass in Flower Hill Farm. And it looks so merry and bright and they're so happy. And oh, Lord, you guys, it, it takes time and it takes a lot of effort. It's, it, it is truly me in my backyard and I work a full-time job still. And I come home in the summers and either I'm weeding or cutting or prepping for um, bouquets the next day. Right now, I didn't I wasn't going to turn it into a full-time business. I kind of did accidentally because I got a wild hair in my head one day and said, oh, I'm going to buy a shop now and do it full season. But it's a lot of hard work. And I think you figure that out after the first or second year. And by the end, by the end of the season, you almost hate flowers. You're like, God, can't you just die? No. <laughs> but um, I'm a, I'm a flower lover through and through, but by the end of the season, you can get really burnt out on it too, just like any other job. That's yeah. a good advice. And seed catalogs <laughs> are coming out and it's fun to buy them and think about starting all these seeds. Yeah. You're doing a good job of grounding us with reality of focus <laughs> on a few and Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I think to Tanya's point too, because I, I, I think I'd give the same advice about being a florist. Being a florist is really rewarding. And I know there's a lot of people who are, you know, I'm going to be a flower farmer and you kind of need some florist skills so you can have beautiful designs and base arrangements and wrap bouquets to sell, um, to, to market yourself and sell yourself. And again, being a florist can be really romantic and fun and picturesque, but it's, you know, it's washing buckets, it's cleaning out your cooler, it's floors covered in stems and petals and, and leaf debris, and you're trying not to slip on it. And yeah, so there's, um, I think with flower farming and florist, or if you're doing a hybrid, there's so many, there's so many beautiful things and it can be really gorgeous and fun, but I agree with Tanya hard hundred percent. Sometimes you're 
you're out there trying to beat the hundred degree weather or the sweat is pouring down your face as you're harvesting the snapdragons. And you're like, I really need to get this done because if I don't harvest them today, they're going to look like garbage by tomorrow. So, um, yes, it, it, it can be really fun, but don't underestimate the sweat equity. (laughs) (laughs) Great feedback and thoughts. Um, If somebody has more questions for you, do you have websites where they can find your contact information and get in touch? Uh, you can find me either at Kingsbury Conservation um, on the web or Flagle Flowers on Facebook because my website, I don't keep up with enough on my on, uh, for my Flagle Flowers. But with my Facebook page, I am taking pictures. I'm updating almost every day. So and all my information's on there, my phone number, email, everything that you need. Awesome. And I can attest to the fact that it's really fun to follow along with Tanya's farm. And um, I enjoy following so many farm accounts. And if you're looking for me, um, the best place to look is extension.sdstate.edu. So the SDSU extension website, and there's the garden and yard page, and you'll see my mugshot, if you will, and you can click on my bio and see my contact information. And you can see articles that I've written. Um, and we also have an extension newsletter for garden and yard that includes you know, stuff for home gardeners, stuff for small scale producers. And then we have a weekly program in season called Garden Hour. And I do sometimes talk about cut flower production on there. And that airs 7 p.m. Central every Tuesday, May through August. And I'm going to put in a quick plug too for South Dakota specialty producers have a group of flower growers that meet about once a month virtually and so if that's something you're interested in if you're a cut flower grower in or near South Dakota if you join South Dakota specialty producers during your membership application you can check a box that indicates your interest in cut flowers and we'll make sure that you get on the email list to be included in that as well it's just kind of a fun uh, peer group for networking So with that, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the South Dakota Specialty Producers Association podcast. And until next time, keep growing.